Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. For all the listeners here, I'd like to... To, to you know, tell you what specifically the Equal Pay Act in Title VII says. And it, it states that if you have the same employer with the same job description and the same responsibilities, you cannot discriminate based on gender. And 60 years later, we're still fighting for something that is already federal law. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to a goalie extraordinaire, a World Cup champion, and two-time Olympic gold medalist, Hope Solo, about her battle for equal pay and equity uh, in the world of U.S. soccer. I also have some choice words about a certain Kyrie Irving press conference and an appreciation of the late Lee Evans, 1968 Olympian who passed away this week. But first, let's talk to Hope Solo. Just to break the ice here, I'm a former goalie myself um, at, at the all-too-high level of uh, high school. And I just wanted to ask you, how did you originally get roped into that all-too-thankless position <laughs> on the soccer field? Oh, well, it is nice to speak to a fellow goalkeeper. Um, despite what level you played at, it, uh, it's, it's, I, I truly believe it's the toughest position in all of sport. And... You know, my mom always said that the toughest position was her in the stadium. So actually the, the parents of a goalkeeper is, is even more difficult because you want your son or daughter to have a great game, which means making saves and being in the action. But at the same time, you know, you're, you're rooting for the team to win, your team to win, and you don't want the ball to, to get in the back of the net. So it's a really difficult position for parents to be in. So 
Um, yes, I feel bad for your parents as well. But it, I got <laughs> roped in. How did I get roped in? Let's see. I was a great uh, field player. I had the state record for, for scoring goals in high school. Um, I got recruited as both a field player and as a goalkeeper. Our goalkeeper got hurt, I think, around U14. And our coach asked us, you know, who wants to try out for goalkeeper? And we all just wanted to have fun. And we put our hands up and we got into the goal. And I just was quick and I was athletic and I wasn't afraid of the ball. And something clicked and they realized I could be a phenomenal goalkeeper. You know, at, at that point in time, goalkeepers weren't great with the ball at their feet. They weren't necessarily fit and agile and strong, um, especially in the United States. They didn't always put the athlete in the goal. That doesn't happen in Europe. It happens in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I take great pride. I used to be embarrassed to say that I was a goalkeeper because I didn't want that to mean that I was out of shape. I didn't want that to mean that I wasn't good with the ball at my feet. And later in my career, I took great pride in the difficulty of the position, in the mentality of it, in the intricacies, in the um, just fine-tuning. You can never perfect the position, so it always challenged me. And now I take great pride in showing others that great athletes have to be in the goal to win championships. Yeah, and I, I'd never thought about it before, but I think it's fair to say that you predicated that shift in people understanding, at least in the United States, how important it was to put some of your best athletes between the pipes. Absolutely. I take great pride in popular, popularizing the, the position, especially in the women's game. Yes. So did you have role models, male or female, about the kind of <laughs> You wanted to be? No, you know, I I grew up playing sports with my father, with my brother. Um, I very much was a tomboy. Uh, I didn't watch women's soccer. Not, you know, I, I was obviously aware of the 1999 Women's World Cup, uh, but I grew up watching basketball and college sports with my dad and my brothers. Um, so I love their favorite athletes, like Bo Jackson, who did it all, right? Football and baseball. I loved Allen Iverson because he could dribble and was, was cutthroat on the basketball court. But all of the athletes I looked up to were male athletes and not even soccer players. Um, can you name one athlete that you've met in your life that you were tongue-tied to meet because you were just a little bit in awe to be in the same space with them? Or does that not happen when you reach your level? No, I, I, I don't get tongue-tied. I, 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 uh, I have a lot of respect for my fellow athletes and celebrities that I do meet. Um, but I, I don't get tongue-tied or, or nervous. But I, I, I did a signing, actually, finally, with Bo Jackson. As I said, I was a little girl and my brothers, and my dad loved him. And I did this appearance with him. And I just had to get something signed for I had to, right? And that's what fellow athletes do. You know, we all ask for signatures and pictures to give to somebody's niece or nephew or whatever. And I walked up to him, <laughs> and he wouldn't give me the time of day, and he kind of just ignored me, and and that was that was that was heartbreaking. But then he realized who I was. His agent, I think, said, "Hey, hey, that's uh, that's Hope Solo," and next thing you know, I was invited to his golf tournament. And but at that point, I was done. You know, once once you show your true colors, I I just feel like you need to treat everybody with respect, regardless of if they're a, a fellow athlete or a celebrity. And, and that's what I make sure to do with all my fans. It's sometimes exhausting because you actually have to give a real piece of yourself and time and energy. But, but I believe that that's humanity. I mean, that's the right thing to do. And I, I lost a lot of respect at that moment. Well, speaking of humanity, 
um, as, as, as we shift our conversation here. I mean, you, you've been so outspoken on issues of equal pay, but also racial equity in soccer, soccer equity for, for disabled people in soccer. Well, what has stirred you to speak out? I mean, and that could either be part of your, your upbringing or anything more recently. What, what has made you the kind of person that's willing to not just shut up and play? I, I mean, you have to go way back, I would assume. Um, uh, it is it is obviously how one is raised, and I think it's probably an accumulation of a number of different things. Um, to have the ability to speak up, uh, have the ability to not be silent, especially when you're being criticized quite a bit. So when I look back, um, I was raised uh, around very strong women with my, my grandmother and my mother. But I was also raised to think equality was normal. I'll never forget um, when I went to college, you know, I, I was young and naive and I was just competitive and I wanted a, a scholarship and I wanted to play for the United States. And, and I had my blinders on and I was completely focused to fulfilling my dreams. And then when I got to college, you know, I'm 17 years old. I, I, I was young when I first got to college. So I was 17 years old, and I, I went to my first party um, with all, all my soccer friends. We all went to the football party, and and we got there, and we, we had early morning workouts the next morning, so we didn't stay very late. And we started to walk out, and I had a football player say, hey, where are you guys going? You know, why are you guys leaving? And I, I said, you know, I spoke up. I said, oh, we have training early in the morning. And he said, nobody gives a bleepity bleep about women's sports or women's soccer. We're the ones who makes the money for the university. And right then and there, I realized that, oh, wow, nobody has ever disrespected me as a female athlete until that moment when I was 17. Because I grew up, you know, just with my blinders on, thinking that equality was normal. And I had every opportunity that my male counterparts would have. And then it wasn't until I was in the real world as a young adult when uh, my eyes were, were really opened. Oh, what a charmer he sounds like. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, was, was there anybody, uh, you mentioned your family, but have you, have you had any influences in terms of other athletes, male or female, whoever, that you saw speak out and you said to yourself, hey, that's, that, that's kind of a role model for me. That's what I want to be doing. You know, Bill, no, no. I, when I look back, I saw all the inequities. You know, I, I had played on the U.S. Women's National Team. You know, I had been training with them since 1997. So, again, I was a, a young female at the time, 17 years old. I think I was 16 when I got first um, called up to a national team camp. So I'm, I'm very, very young. And it was at the height of the success, you know, going into 1999. And I saw these women as rock stars, the Mia Hams of the world. I saw, um, I saw us staying at, uh, you know, five-star hotels with tons of fans out of the hotel and security guards. And, and I, I saw the possibilities of how far women's soccer and women's sports could go. And, and they really, truly were rock stars at the time. And as time went on, after um, kind of the excitement slowed down from their success of 1999 and going into 2000, 2000 you know, early 2000s, everything went to, back to being second-class citizens for the women's team. We had middle seats in the very back of the plane. We never had charters like our, our male counterparts, the men's national soccer team. Um, and we were still winning tournaments, and the men were not. And so 
I think my eyes were really opened seeing all of the inequities just playing for my country and seeing how our five-star hotels went down to two-and-a-half-star hotels and our per diem wasn't even equal. So there were a number of issues where I started asking question after question to our attorneys, uh, to the leaders on the team at that time, and everybody just said, hey, Hope, you know, the moment you start asking for the same contract or the same CBA as the men's national team, well, it, it's a non-starter. I mean, I was told that by the president of U.S. Soccer, uh, Sunil Galati at the time, that having the same exact contract as the men is a non-starter for negotiations. So I, I just constantly was, was told, you know, it's, it's above your pay grade. Quit asking these questions. We're moving forward with uh, this particular contract because this is all soccer will offer us. And so I knew deep down that this wasn't right. And I, I think as I became more of a veteran, you know, I, I played on the team for almost 20 years, 19 years since my first call up to when I got fired. And in those 20 years, you know, I saw a number of CBAs, a number of new contracts, and they were never equal. Um, we started new, I played in every single professional league in the United States. And we were asked to play professionally on horrible fields no doctors, no trainers. We didn't even know who the coach would be for a professional team. I remember telling my teammates, we cannot accept this pay because you can't, most of the players can't even live for the entire year on this pay. So this is not a professional league. This is a semi-pro league. So I, I kind of always became the, the voice that, well, really the voice of reason, but at the end of the day, everybody still wanted to play. And the love of the game is what... Um, Essentially, this always made us agree to, to certain contracts, the love of the game, the pressure to do so, and the intimidation by U.S. soccer, quite frankly. I mean, you know, you, you raise the issue of uh, the end of your time with USA soccer, and it really did seem like shortly after speaking up around these issues of equity and equal pay, you were ousted from the team. I mean, what happened there? Can you, can you tell us? Yeah, there, there's a very rich history. Um, we we had um, the same attorney that was our Players Association director for way too long. He was buddy-buddy with Sunil Gladi. He was buddies with U.S. Soccer. He sat in their suite. Um, he always convinced us to just agree to whatever contract U.S. Soccer gave us. And for years, many of us tried to, to vote him out and bring in a different attorney, somebody who would fight for our rights and our voices as players. And I'll never forget the first time I brought in um, somebody who was connected to the NFLPA, one of the best players associations in the world. And through my husband, I got the contacts um, and they came and met with our team. And the first time we ever voted, it was, uh, I believe the number, what was it? it was 10 to, nine to nine, I believe it was. It was an equal vote. And I remember at that point, I actually felt victorious because for the first time, that many players actually knew we needed major changes. And it took another two years before we actually <laughs> voted Rich Nichols in, who was the head of the Players Association, who helped us start the fight for equal pay. He came in, he educated us about our rights under the Equal Pay Act in Title VII, which honestly, looking back as a 30-something-year-old woman, for us to not know our rights is shameful, you know. Quite frankly, I, I 
do a lot of discussions around the world, and I, I tried to tell everybody we have to, in order to get equality, in order to get equal pay, we have to be educated about our rights. And in my 30s, I didn't know that um, that the Equal Pay Act in Title VII was federal law, and it was federal law since 1963, signed into law by John F. Kennedy. I didn't know even what it stated, which just for all the listeners here, I'd like to, to, to you know, tell you what specifically the Equal Pay Act in Title VII says. And it, it states that if you have the same employer with the same job description and the same responsibilities, you cannot discriminate based on gender. And 60 years later, we're still fighting for something that is already federal law. But really, that was the start, is we had to educate ourselves. We had to have the right leader to help us educate ourselves. And this fight start began, you know, in 2015. Um, and that, that's really when my relationship got a little bit rocky with U.S. soccer, is when I brought in, you know, this hard-ass attorney um, who who really empowered us to stay together, to fight for equality. Um, and eventually I got fired and so did he. In mm -hmm. fact, the president of U.S. soccer took many of the players out to eat in Spain and said, we cannot work with that attorney because he's not agreeable. So if you want a new contract, you're going to have to get rid of him. So as, you know, it was divide and conquer at that point, the age-old tactic that many businesses are, are fully aware of how to control their employees, and it was divide and conquer. And I was ousted, um, and then shortly thereafter, Rich Nichols was ousted as well. And shortly thereafter that, the team signed a contract that was less than equal. And there went our mm. fight for equal pay. That must have been very difficult for you at the time, uh, you know, given relationships with teammates and things of that nature. That must have been very tough. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really was. I think um, my my heart and soul had, had gone into the game, gone into winning medals and trophies for our country. Um, I gave it everything I had for two decades for our country. So for it to end like that, it, it, it was tough. But at the same time, I had a new passion. And when one passion um, kind of steps in front of the other passion, um, you know, I always said, once you're not enjoying it anymore, it's time to move on. And at that point, my fight for equality and for injustices um, was bigger than wanting to win trophies for my country. I, this was going to be um, my, my new lifelong goal is to really fight for these inequities and to get equal pay for women soccer players and, and quite frankly, all athletes. Now, if you were in charge of USA soccer, uh, and what a world that would be. Um, walk, walk us through what you would do differently. Like, what would be some of the reforms you, that you'd immediately implement? Oh, well, <laughs> there, there's a number of different things with U.S. soccer. You know, I, I ran for the president of U.S. soccer several years ago. Um, the reason why I did is, isn't because I thought I would win. I was one of four players to run for the president of U.S. soccer. Um, it's because I knew my voice was incredibly important. It, it took a lot of strength and courage to do so. It was one of the hardest things that I'd ever done to be on, on the stage at an election. Um, a day after having um, an ectopic pregnancy, I was on stage in white. <laughs> I had a standing ovation. Um, it, once once I, I ran 
officer of the president of U.S. Soccer, I became privy to a lot of information as a candidate that nobody else could have information regarding transparency issues, financial issues, um, marketing issues, and things of the sort. So to this day, there's a lack of transparency within U.S. Soccer as a national governing body. Um, so there, there's a lot of things that have to change. The four marketing arm their relationship with Major League Soccer, not with the NWSL, the Women's Professional League. Um, it, it's very much one-sided. Um, there are, uh, uh, you know, the, the people on the board have ties to the MLS and have ties to Soccer United Marketing, so there's a lot of conflicts of interest. Um, and obviously, the first thing I would do is, is do equal contracts for the men and women. But there are so many issues within U.S. soccer. You know, I, I also filed a complaint with the USOPC um, stating that U.S. soccer has discriminated against kids of color who want to play soccer in their communities. Um, in the complaint, it also says that U.S. soccer engages in financial conflicts of interest, like I just discussed. Um, they fail to provide equal soccer opportunities for kids with hearing disabilities. They don't comply with the legally mandated 20% athlete representation, um, which I ended up winning in, in a play um, arbitration. Um, so, so there's a lot of issues that, that I addressed with my US OPC complaint, and US soccer is still fighting them. Um, they finally changed their new conflict of interest policy because of my hearing, because of my hearing with the US OPC, and they finally were forced to make athletes 20% um, decision on, you know, it, provide athletes 20% in, in all decision-making policies. And, and, and that's huge because, you know, those are our rights as athletes. And this, the Ted Stevens Act actually requires that all decision-making bodies, including grievance panels, must have 20% athlete representation. And U.S. soccer was in blatant violation of this federal law. And they, uh, they of course, quietly changed this bylaws about 10 years ago to bypass this 20% athlete representation requirement. And 99% of the athletes at U.S. Soccer weren't even aware that this right of theirs was stripped. So, um, you know, there's a lot that has to change, and we truly hope that the U.S. OPC uh, can hold every NGB accountable. But there's a lot of work to be done. Now, uh, Senators Cantwell and Capito, they have this bipartisan equal pay for Team USA Act. What, what, what do you think of that bill? Should people, should we be supporting that, people who are sympathetic to the, the issues that you're raising? Uh, so this is, this is kind of next on the list um, in our effort to get equal pay and equal treatment for all women Olympians. So Chairwoman Cantwell and Senator Capito, it, it, it's a bipartisan equal pay for Team USA Act. And from the bills that I've read um, and that I've seen, it, it, it truly is the bill that is best positioned to finally, finally <laughs> achieve equality for, for women athletes. Um, the bill requires that all athletes representing the United States amateur athlete competitions receive equal compensation, equal benefits, um, and equal treatment regardless of, of gender. Um, there's also reporting requirements to ensure that each national governing body actually complies. So I did write to Chairwoman Cantwell and Senator Capito calling for the speedy reintroduction of the, of the bill. And I'm, I'm very, very hopeful that prior to this Summer Olympics, we can get this bill.
stated, because it, it's time for, you know, I, I live here in rural North Carolina, and what's really, really surprising to me is that the general public thinks that equal pay and Olympic athletes' compensation is much further along than it really is. It's, it's popular to discuss and to talk about, but it's, it's, we're still so far behind. So what I find just astonishing is that Republicans and Democrats alike, um, my dear friends in Seattle and L.A., my dear friends here in rural North Carolina, they already believe that Olympians get treated equally. So it's something that people believe in and assume that it already takes place. And that's why we need help. Is It's a popular topic, and it's a topic that is bipartisan and everybody believes in, but it's still not happening. So that's why we are asking for support from legislation. Mm. Where do you think we are, if you had to make a prediction, in 10 years? Like, are we still having this discussion? Do you see progress on the agenda? <laughs> oh, in 10 years, we better not be discussing these issues anymore. Like I said, we, we, started, um, we started this very public fight for equal pay in 2015. So it's been six long years. Um, it's been it's been exhausting. A lot of money has been spent. A lot of money has been lost. Um, a lot of opportunities have have been uh, when you're fighting against corporations. When you're fighting the good fight, you're not necessarily popular with the people who are in business together. So it's been very very difficult, and it's already been six years. So in another ten years, um, I, I don't believe we will still be having these discussions. And the, the reason why I say that is when you look worldwide, U.S. soccer could be the leaders of equal pay, and they should be the leaders. They have the most resources. Uh, we have the, the winningest team, and yet Sweden, Iceland, Australia, all these federations already are paying their, their men and women soccer players equally. So we have already you know, made an impact around the world, and we will continue to do so, and it's just time for U.S. soccer to wake up Stop spending millions of dollars in attorney fees, do the right thing, both lawfully and the right thing, you know, socially right now. Um, and, and I do believe that history will bear witness sooner rather than later. Wow. Your mouth, God's ears. Um, Hope Solo, you've been so generous with your time. But before you go, uh, I just want to ask you, first of all, is there anything that, that, that I'm missing in terms of what I'm asking you? Anything else you'd like to express? Anything else that you want to get across to our listeners. No, I think we covered a lot. Thank you, Dave, for having me on. No problem. And I got to ask, uh, you know, because I ask this of every guest, you know, we're all involved in these trials and tribulations and journeys. What what music do you listen to? What's your soundtrack as you go about uh, your fight? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love so many different types of music. I like Michael Kiwanuka. I love me son Lady Gaga. I mean, I'm all over the place. I have even never liked country in my entire life. I moved to North Carolina and, uh, oh gosh, I can't, I can't even think of his name right now. He, massively popular right now, country singer. Anyways, I like it all. That's awesome. I like it. <laughs> and it, it's, uh, it's been really fun. We, we have twins now they're 15 going on 15 months old 
And I can't believe we had twins during a pandemic. It's been probably besides fighting for equality, one of the hardest things I've ever, ever done. We've been here day in and day out with no help, raising raising two babies at the same time, a pandemic um, for 15 months. And one of the funnest things to do every day is when they wake up, we turn on a Pandora station. Um, it might it might be, dare I say this? No, I won't. I won't tell you what station, but we we turn on some dance music and 15 <laughs> months old and everybody starts stomping their feet and we have a dance party every morning. So it's it's one of the most beautiful things. It's my favorite part of the day. And we have this new Stephen's family dance party and the babies just stomp their feet and go crazy. So it's our, it's my new dance move. Oh my goodness. That's, that sounds rather amazing. It sounds like a, <laughs> a, a TikTok video waiting to happen. Uh, possibly. Possibly. A little teaser out there. Um, Hope Solo, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Of course. I appreciate it, too. Thank you, Dave. You take care. You take care as well. We'll be back right after a message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Kyrie Irving. Okay, look. Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving is highly respected on the court and off for good reason. There's his title with the Cleveland Cavaliers where he hit the shot in game seven and the almost unanimous opinion that he's the greatest NBA in-game dribbler to ever pick up a ball. His off-court respect comes from the players in the league, if not the fans. The fans tend to roll their eyes at Irving, recalling when he said that he believed the earth was flat. His teammates, on the other hand, know Irving as a serious person, someone who argued that the league should not go into the bubble to play after the police murder of George Floyd, that the season should, in effect, be canceled. It was even revealed that he secretly bought the Floyd family a home. Irving celebrates his Native American heritage, is paying close attention to the New York City DA's race, and also recently converted to Islam, fasting while playing during Ramadan. He's an iconoclast for sure, secure in himself and caring less about what people think than any athlete in memory. Even though he sometimes plays his sport with a look of barely concealed tolerance, as if there are numerous things he'd rather be doing, Irving joined one of the most exclusive clubs in league history this past season by shooting 50% from the field, 40% from three-point range, and 90% from the line. This is why it probably wasn't surprising that of all NBA players who could be speaking publicly about Israel's bombardment of Palestine. It was Kyrie Irving who was. Several players have posted messages of solidarity with the Palestinian people, but none have taken the time, as Irving did, to put basketball in its proper place. None have planted themselves out there as an internationalist against oppression and a humanist who wants the violence to stop. In the same way that he wore an I Can't Breathe shirt years ago during warm-ups after the police killing of Eric Garner, 
Irving made it clear that his breath was also taken by the horrors in Gaza. At this presser, Irving said, I'm not going to lie to you guys. A lot of stuff is going on in this world and basketball is just not the most important thing to me right now. There's a lot of stuff going on overseas. All my people, they're still in bondage all across the world. And there's a lot of dehumanization going on. So I apologize if I'm not going to be focused on your questions. It's just too much going on in the world for me to just be talking about basketball. He also stated that it's not just in Palestine. It's not just in Israel. It's all over the world, man, and I feel it. I'm very compassionate to all races, all cultures, and to see a lot of different people being discriminated upon or against based on their religion, color of their skin, or what they believe in. We all say we're human beings and we care and we're compassionate, but what are you doing to help? He then spoke at length about why he believes that we need to build, quote, a community that stands with unity and liberation. Irving ended his presser by challenging people to do just that challenging people to, quote, stand on the good word of treating everyone with respect, compassion, and love. It was an emotionally stirring event. You could hear a pin drop and the cameras click as he was making his remarks. It also produced some wry smiles among the basketball cognoscenti. All season, Irving has been periodically fined by the NBA for not speaking to the press, while the sports world wanted him to speak. You wanted it, you got it. Irving is only the most prominent of a number of U.S. athletes who have been posting to social media in solidarity with the Palestinian people. In years past, this has absolutely been the third rail of sports and politics, with silence being the response to war and occupation. That is shifting. Influenced by connections between the Black Lives Matter movement with its deep roots among NBA players and the Palestinian struggle, we are seeing a new internationalist consciousness against racism and oppression. That this is finding expression in the world of sports is a very dynamic development. But that Kyrie Irving is on the front lines of this shift is truly no surprise at all. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now is normally the part of the show where I give a just stand up and just sit your ass down to people in the sports world. But this week, I'm doing neither. Instead, taking a much more serious note and relaying my appreciation for the late Lee Evans. Lee Evans was world class, on the track and off, with an emphasis on the word world. The one-time world and Olympic record holder in the 400 meters passed away this week at the age of 74 in Nigeria, where he had coached on and off for decades. It was in 1968 at the Olympics in Mexico City when at the tender age of 21, Evans ran a scorching 400 meters in 43.86 seconds, a record that stood for 20 years. His second gold at those games came anchoring the United States team in the 1600 meter relay which was run in a mind-boggling 
two minutes and 56 seconds, a record that lasted for a remarkable 24 years. That just doesn't happen in track and field. He was a Hall of Fame runner, but that's not solely why he is remembered. Lee Evans was more than someone who could burn up a track. Before those 1968 games, he was a political organizer with the Olympic Project for Human Rights, the organization of people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos that was spearheaded by professor sociologist Dr. Harry Edwards. The Olympic Project for Human Rights aimed to organize a black boycott of the 1968 Olympics in protest of racism and injustice both inside and outside the Olympic Games. The boycott was meant to be a declaration of human rights amidst a world that in 1968 was being roiled by the U.S. war in Vietnam and resistance to racism across the globe. The boycott was unsuccessful, so runners like Smith, Carlos, and Lee Evans decided that they would take their protests to the games themselves. We know what Carlos and Smith did at those Olympics, but far more forgotten is the moment when Lee Evans, along with 400-meter silver medalist Larry James and bronze medalist Ron Freeman, took to the medal stand wearing black berets, the signifier of the newly formed Black Panther Party for self-defense. Evans almost didn't run the race. He considered a boycott after Carlos and Smith were expelled from the Olympic Village for raising their fists. But it was John Carlos who told him that the best revenge would be to go out to the track and kick some ass. After the race, Evans was deluged with death threats, but he also was critiqued by those who thought he should have done an even more radical demonstration. I interviewed Evans in 2004 and he said to me, I had a tough time because black people thought I didn't do enough and whites were just mad. I got it from both sides. The black people thought I should have done nothing less than dynamite the victory stand. That's the only thing that would have satisfied them because after Tommy and John, what else could I do? What Lee Evans could do was then lead an immensely rich life where he took both his track acumen and his internationalist politics and combine those passions to coach around the world, from the Middle East to the University of South Alabama to across the African continent, most centrally in Nigeria. Evans even coached the Nigerian team to a bronze medal at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. As he said to me, as soon as I learned about what Jim Crow meant and I found out that my ancestors were Africans, I wanted to go back to Africa. So that's what I did. I went back to Africa in 1975 and I worked there for about 20 years and I was fortunate to coach three Olympic medal winners on Nigeria's team. I reached out to Ron Davis, a lifelong friend of Lee Evans and a renowned track coach in his own right. Ron emailed me the following. Lee was offered a lot of money to visit South Africa during the time apartheid was going on but refused to go. Lee and John Carlos organized athletes to prevent Rhodesia from participating in the 1972 Olympic Games. Lee and I stood proudly when the Nigerian national anthem was played and had conversations about how meaningful it was to us, more so than the United States national anthem. We were also highly respected as national athletics coaches at a time when it was a struggle for Afro-American or African coaches to be selected on USA Olympic teams or get head coaching positions at major universities. Lee's presence around the world helped promote track and field because he always took the time to give and not expect anything in return. My brother and my best friend will be sincerely missed. Lee Evans is going to be buried in Nigeria. He was a track and field icon before he was 22 and someone who devoted decades of his life to coaching others. But perhaps most significantly for this current generation of athlete activists, he was an organizer 
and he was brave. He was an organizer, someone who put in the work to try and organize athletes to fight for social justice in meetings large and small. He was brave, someone who in the face of possibly suspension or far worse, took his protest to the medal stand. In a year when the International Olympic Committee has pledged to crack down on athletes who sport the phrase Black Lives Matter on their clothes or make any kind of a demonstration, his life is a reminder that any athlete considering protest in the face of these dictates stands on the shoulders of giants. Lee Evans was a giant. And now he is to be buried in Nigeria, returned to his ancestors. For eternity, Lee Evans is finally home. Before the season began, I said Philadelphia 76ers uh, will be playing against the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals. I see no reason not to stick with that, even though the Lakers are the seventh seed and the 76ers, though, much to people's surprise, not mine, are the number one seed. So 76ers, Lakers in the finals. It'll be a replay of 1983 with Dr. J dunking on Michael Cooper. That's my prediction. Although, if the Washington Wizards find a way to upset the 76ers, don't forget that I was talking about these Wizards when they were 0-6, that they still had a lot left in the tank. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Hope Solo for joining us. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. Thank you so much to everybody out there who listens to the show. You can always reach me, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports on Twitter. Uh, please leave a little note or something and review the show. All that stuff, all those little algorithmic contributions to the show actually grows the program and allows us to do it. You know, recently a website did their top 10 favorite sports podcasts and all the sports podcasts either came from ESPN or The Ringer or Barstool. That's bullshit. There are so many great independent sports podcasts out there from the Burn It All Down pod to Sports as a Weapon uh, to End of Sport. I mean, so much good stuff. And the idea that we get forgotten rankles. And the only way to prevent that is people like you. So thank you to my audience and let's show these fools what a real sports podcast is all about. So for everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.